0: Learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Today is Shabbat Nachamu, which you have heard already from Rabbi David. is the beginning of seven Sabbaths of comfort, following the three Sabbaths of fasting that led up to Tisha B'Av. The fast of Tisha B'Av which began Wednesday evening, ended on Thursday evening, is arguably the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. This day we mourn the loss of both Solomon's temple in 586, before the Common Era, and the second temple in 70 of the Common Era, which had been rebuilt pursuant to the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, Construction of the second temple was completed under the reign of Darius in the year 515 before the common era. <clears throat> Our parsha for the week is which means, and I pleaded, referring to Moshe begging Hashem to allow him to enter the promised land. And the haftar portion, as we've already heard, is from Isaiah 40, which begins, nahamu, nahamu ami, Comfort, comfort my people. Today, I will only briefly discuss the significance and context of these readings. I will focus most of my talk on comfort and hope. Comfort for the people of God, including Israel and Jewish people everywhere, and our hope, whereby we see the approaching restoration of the kingdom of Israel as the kingdom of God on earth. Along the way, I will mention how these historical events, the destruction of the two temples, might apply to us and impact us as Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles today. Okay, significance and context. First of all, how significant are the Ten Commandments? In today's Torah portion, Deuteronomy 5, Moshe repeats the Ten Commandments almost word for word from Exodus 20. That's pretty powerful, right? And second of all, how significant is the Shema? Also in the portion, we have Deuteronomy 6 where we find the Shema, arguably the greatest commandment. Third of all, how significant is it that Moshe asked permission to enter the promised land and Hashem didn't just say no. He said basically, well, something quite a bit stronger than no. He said, don't ever ask me about this again. Anyone ever had occasion to say that to one of their kids? I think we should, should conclude from this that sin has consequences. Finally, it is here in this portion that Moshe warns the people that their corruption and idolatry, their failure to obey Hashem will result in the following, and I quote, you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Yardain to possess. Again, sin has consequences. As an expression, I believe, of his humility, Moshe uses the example of his own sin and its consequences to exhort, reinforce, and illustrate to the people the importance of obedience after which he repeats the 10 words, the 10 commandments, gives the greatest commandment, which basically exhorts us to teach these words to our children how by showing them how to love Hashem. So Moshe is warning the people profusely how to avoid destruction. And when the destruction did come, it was from God. It was God who raised up the king of Babylon to carry the Israelites away captive to Babylon in 586 before the common era. He had warned them in the Torah, He had warned them through the prophets, their neglect of the commandments, their idolatry, which the scriptures call harlotry, their refusal to hear the prophets all contributed to the destruction of Solomon's temple. Jewish commentators lay the blame for the destruction of the second temple, also on the Jewish people, for the sin of Sinat Hinnom, which I think you probably heard about on Wednesday night, Translated usually as baseless hatred, but maybe more accurately described as acting on the hatred by which you have made your own people your enemy. So what happened, you might ask? Okay, maybe you wouldn't. Um, Some information from the Talmud that describes The Talmud's view of what happened, what this Sinat Hinam did. Read that during the Second Temple period, people were engaged in Torah study and the observance of mitzvot, the commandments. It was normal for people to discuss their manner of observance, disputing among themselves how to properly apply the Torah to their lives. Disputing is not a bad thing. It's been a way of life for the Jewish people since forever. We even see this in the New Covenant accounts of Yeshua interacting with the scribes and Pharisees, much disputing. And at that time, two major groups arose, the disciples of Hillel and the disciples of Shammai. As an aside, in the book of Acts, we find that Shaul, Paul the Apostle, was a disciple of Gamaliel, whose grandfather was this very Hillel. In Judaism, observance of mitzvot is regulated by halakha, or Jewish law, which dictates the accepted manner of walking out or applying Torah to one's life. The root for the word halakha is Hey lamed chet, which is halach, which means to walk. But how is halacha decided? Who gets to decide? There were accepted processes for discussing halacha and how disputes over different manners of observance should be resolved. Again, the Talmud says, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disputed with one group saying the halakha is like us and the other saying the halakha is like us. A heavenly voice, this is Talmudic, this is from the Talmud, a heavenly voice emerged saying, these and those are the words of the living God, but the halakha is like Beit Hillel. At this point, let me briefly say a word about this alleged heavenly voice. Whether or not this happened in a literal sense is not especially relevant to the discussion. It may be that the heavenly voice was used as a literary device to attempt to bring a dispute to an end or to explain how it ended. So the conclusion is that someone whether by the inspiration of God or from an actual heavenly voice, determined that the proper way of keeping the Torah was demonstrated among the disciples of Hillel. Who knows, maybe it even came from one of the disciples of Hillel, I don't know. The Talmud explains this as the reason for the prominence of Beit Hillel. They were easygoing. They allowed themselves to be insulted, and they would mention Beit Shammai teaching along with, and even before, their own. From this explanation, we can infer that Beit Shammai, the practices were not so easygoing. In other words, they disputed with Beit Hillel, but their manner of debate was conducted without patience, for another person's opinion, resulting in disrespect for the other person. Up to this time, even though there were difference in practice, it was the accepted practice that even every rabbi had the right to enforce his own halakhic rulings among his own disciples but the correct manner of disagreement was that even if you think another is wrong, you must respect him for doing what he believes to be right. But if someone fights loudly with his counterpart or disgraces him because of his different opinion, not only is the dispute not resolved, it spreads and becomes sharper. It turns different opinions into different camps creating a kind of sectarianism that describes the other camp as the enemy. In a message recently, a few months ago from Rabbi Jamie Cowan, he described the same thing when we bring political discussion into our place of worship. But this is the sinat chinam, the hatred of one another that led to the destruction of the second temple. Our Haftar portion comes from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied the destruction of Judah and of the first temple. In Isaiah 39, he tells Hezekiah, Behold, days are coming when everything in your house, which your fathers have stored up to this day, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Adonai. Adonai. Moreover, some of your descendants who will issue from you whom you will father will be taken away and will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But the very next chapter, our Haftarah portion, Isaiah 40, speaks of comfort. In verse 2 he says, speak kindly to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, for she has received from Adonai's hand double for all her sins. This cry, "Nachamu, Nahamu ami, comfort my people, comes immediately after the prophecy of destruction almost as if Hashem himself were crying over the destruction of his own people, which they rightly deserved. I was so blessed to hear a couple of the songs of our worship today coming directly from this scripture from Isaiah 40, describing the comfort, the good news, the coming, the king, on his way. What a a word of comfort. These words of comfort are not empty words. It's not just cheer up, things could be worse. They are built on a premise. Sin has consequences, but Isaiah is declaring that Israel has paid double for her sins. Maybe this is a reference to the loss of Two temples. It might be the reference to the captivity in Babylon, which led Israel being subjected to a foreign king. Being subjected to a foreign king continued when the kingship passed to the Persians, then to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. And of course, what the Babylonians began, the Romans completed with the destruction of the second temple. So basically from 586 before the Common Era until 1948 of the Common Era, era 72 years ago, a period of 2,534 years, Israel never experienced sovereign rulership in her own land during that time. The Jewish people experienced ups and downs in every land where they wandered, but mostly downs. They were expelled from nearly every nation where they lived. They were persecuted and killed for being Jews. There were pogroms and inquisitions and a Holocaust from a Nazi dictator who attempted to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. If Moshe warned the people that their sin would have consequences. Isaiah is declaring that there will come a time when all the consequences will have been doubly atoned for through the suffering that Israel experienced as well as the coming of the Messiah. In Psalm 102, 13 through 17, we read, "'But you, Adonai, sit enthroned forever, Your renown is from generation to generation. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. For the appointed time has come, for her stones are dear to your servants, and they cherish her dust. So the nations will fear Adonai's name and all the kings of the earth your glory. Rodoni has rebuilt Zion. He has appeared in his glory. The appointed time to favor Zion has come. Has a nation ever been born in one day? But in one day, Israel went from not having been a nation for over 2,500 years to being a nation again. For many of you, that happened in your lifetime. Well, maybe not. Didn't happen in mine. So, and I'm probably one of the oldest here. There are many who believe that the temple will be rebuilt. This morning I heard a story, also from the Talmud, about Rabbi Akiba and the other rabbis of the great assembly weeping in the courts, that once were the temple of God, weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And as they wept, Rabbi Akiva, all of a sudden saw a fox run through the temple area and he began to laugh. And the other rabbis looked at him, what, why are you laughing, Rabbi Akiva? He said, I saw a fox running through the temple area. Our scriptures predict that that we will be destroyed and foxes will run through the temple area, but right after that, they predict the rebuilding of the temple. Perhaps it will be rebuilt. Jewish theologians differ on this question. One such theologian, Michael Visegrad, a blessed memory, stated that the presence of God dwells among the Jewish people as a whole, with or without a temple. By the way, Rabbi David Rudolph, who used to be a rabbi here, has met Michael Visegrad before his passing and had discussions with him. Very, uh, very exciting to hear from Michael Visegrad. But he said that Jewish people as a whole god dwells among the ecclesia or the, the body of those who believe in yeshua has a similar understanding based on 1 peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 as you come to him the living stone rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be Kohanim, priests, set apart for God to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him through Yeshua, the Messiah. This is why the Tanakh says, in 1 Peter, he says, this is why the Tanakh says, look, I am laying in Sion a stone a chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever rests his trust on it will certainly not be humiliated. I know most of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. This, in context, refers to sexual immorality. But the spiritual temple that Peter is talking about is the corporate body, the ecclesia, the universal body of Messiah of which we all, in Tikvot Israel, profess to be members. And in some mysterious way, we are also connected with the whole house of Israel, among whom the presence of Hashem also dwells. We can and should mourn the loss of the temple. It was a place of worship, of study, and of sacrifices. And when you read the Psalms, the kind of worship that was expressed there was amazing. Even amazing worship that we experience here. Can you imagine having that same kind of worship in the temple of God? I mean, it just adds to it. At the same time, we should consider the temple that is the presence of God in the world today. Where is God in the world? He does nothing except through those among whom he dwells. If ever there was an occasion for the sin of sinachinam, baseless, ha- baseless hatred, it has the potential to show up in the body of Messiah. At first, there was a schism between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Then there was a division between the East and the West. Then there was the Reformation, leading to multiple denominations, I'm not saying all of these things were always completely terrible, but there was division within the Protestant movement. Today there are non-denominational groups and individual congregations basically operating under their own authority. But this speaks of different ways of practicing our otherwise common faith. And it's surprising that there isn't more sectarianism than there is. I've had enough birthdays to have seen some serious, serious division, even within Messianic Judaism, even within individual congregations. Probably you also have seen these things. In Acts 15, a decision was made that Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be part of the Messianic world. <clears throat> Yet you have Jews who are called to keep all of the Torah. Gentiles have more freedom to pursue their service to Messiah in other ways. Paul warns in Romans 11 that Gentile believers ought not to become boastful against the Jews just as Jews ought not to become resentful towards Gentiles the same breaking off that occurred of the Jews could also occur with those who boast is this not a warning against Sinat I believe Philippians 2 starting in verse 1 is a warning against Sinat it doesn't say those words but Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Ruach, if there is any mercy and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit, with one purpose. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but with humility, consider others as more important than yourselves, looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Messiah Yeshua. Peter exhorts us to be united in love. Let us all therefore endeavor to speak kindly to one another and so fulfill the law of Messiah. And it's my hope that when Messiah comes to restore the kingdom to Israel and to establish his reign in the earth and to wipe away every tear and to put an end to death, that he will find faithful, faithful followers who demonstrate the unity of love and the bond of peace, and we say amen. I yield my time. Who is going to close the service today? Okay. Pray for who? Pray for you? (laughs) I had somebody come up to me before the service or during the service and say, I think we need to pray for this congregation. Father, let this congregation be a beacon. Let this congregation be established in love. Let this congregation be like a, a hard diamond of testimony. Let this congregation, out of all of the turmoil and any of the hardships that we have experienced, let this congregation and the radiance of the Word and of the Kingdom that comes from here go forth and touch many lives in this community, in the Jewish community here, but even in the world. Hashem Yeshua. Amen.